Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. Almost the end of the semester, Dave. The last lecture is this afternoon. It's always a kind of a high point, right? Finishing up the fall. Now, this fall has been uh, longer than, than any other, I think, that... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we pushed back the start of the spring semester a week and and I uh, heard like praises running through the halls here because uh, I think it's just been so long. I think most uh, most teachers and professors around the country are are pretty tired, uh, never mind students as well. So, um, but good, it'll be a good, good to finish this year and get into the next year. Well, in August, we looked at the issue of election integrity, knowing that the election was a few months away and a lot of the laws that we're going to affect that election. We're in the process of being written or rewritten or lessons were being learned from the primary elections about the viability of mass mail-in voting. And so now that we've reached the other end of the election cycle, as all 50 states plus DC have certified their election results and the Electoral College is about to vote on Monday, We wanted to take kind of a final look at this issue and think about some of the lessons learned from this process, the lawsuits, the the political hullabaloo and all the rest with an eye on 2022, 2024, beyond, and some broader questions just about American citizenship and what this post-election period has maybe revealed about where we are on that regard. Uh, But before we get to the headlines, just want to remind you once more of our Instagram account, Democracy in America Today, all strung together, one word. Uh, We're trying to uh, interact a bit there with each week's theme and and give you a little bit of a taste of what's going on on the show. So be glad to have you follow us there and engage with us there. So let's turn to those headlines. Uh, It has been a busy week for legal challenges to the results of the presidential election. And with the clock running down again, Electoral College due to vote on Monday, it was kind of some last gasp efforts at either stopping the certification process or moving from popular vote to state appointed electors in various places. Uh, the conservative news site, The Dispatch, uh, did a, a public service yesterday by putting together an article that looked at the status of the 18 major lawsuits filed by President Trump's campaign or those associated with him in one way or another since, since the election took place. And they organized it state by state and kind of gave an update on where each lawsuit was. But we're going to classify them a little different way, uh, three categories. We've got the, the crackpot, the rim shot, and the long shot. Right? So the crackpot lawsuits are the full-blown conspiracy theories. Uh, rim shot, well, when do you use a rim shot? We all know when you got a, a bad joke, right? You do the rim shot to kind of save the joke. So we've got a number of lawsuits where the claims are big and the evidence is very thin. And then the last category is a long shot where you've got some very uh, reasonable uh, concerns and, and yet the remedies are very difficult, expect a court to reach. And so where you're talking about asking a court to vacate an election or to throw out hundreds of thousands or millions of ballots, or to allow a state legislature to appoint electors in the place of those that would have been voted for by the voters. One of the challenges we're seeing in all this is that after the election's over, the remedies available 
are, are these really big consequential ones. And so as we're going to talk about, we're going to see the advantage of, of litigating these kinds of issues on the front end before the election, before the results are known, before we know how close it is in this state versus that state, and before it's obvious that if you were to flip this state, then the election goes this way, or flip that state and the election goes that way. Okay, so quickly through these three categories, focusing on some of the most important ones and the ones that were most headline grabbing in the last week or so, we'll start. Briefly with the crackpot lawsuits, uh, most of these are associated with Sidney Powell, who was a little bit too hot to handle, even for the Trump legal team as, as time went on, uh, who has alleged in three different states that there was this Dominion voting systems, voting machines that were rigged to produce certain results in Venezuela, and now they're being used to literally flip votes from Trump to Biden. That just did not happen. Uh, we had a hand recount in Georgia, <laughs> and there was a slight change in the results, but there was no evidence of anything like votes being flipped. And these lawsuits have all been essentially thrown out summarily, and uh, the evidence obviously just, just isn't there. Uh, and, and anyone who's telling you that the evidence is there for that uh, is either lying to you or, or shamefully incurious about the facts, uh, because there are plenty of facts available to, to prove that this is not actually something that happened in Wisconsin, Arizona, and Georgia. Now, Arizona, you have another crackpot lawsuit, the Sharpie lawsuit, where the claim was essentially that Democratic operatives were giving Republicans Sharpies to mark the ballots with, knowing that that would invalidate the ballot because it would bleed through the other side and it would make it so you couldn't read that. Well, that, that's not how that works. Sharpies are fine on ballots and they have it set up so that the front and the back don't line up. So there's no problem. You can mark your ballot on the front, flip it over, mark it on the back. If it bleeds through, it doesn't make a difference because there's no circle that corresponds on both sides of the ballot. So no problem. Again, a lawsuit that was dismissed. In that case, when it was abandoned by the plaintiffs, they didn't even want to continue the process themselves as, as the initial claim for relief was set aside by the courts that was it. And even the plaintiffs didn't want to pursue the case any further. These, uh, these suits, Matt, they get in the way of uh, what would be a successful um, attempt to, to kind of produce greater integrity in the election. I, I think that um, just the very fact that you're calling them crackpot, right, uh, is, is something that, that kind of makes the whole effort uh, in terms of looking at the election seem crackpot. And that needn't be the case because there are other cases where I think a, a better argument could be made, right? So yeah, the, these lawsuits uh, have done more harm than good uh, to the Trump effort. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point because these, of course, are headline grabbing, uh, partly because the media, uh, which obviously is not sympathetic to the Trump cause, is going to want to play up the most foolish claims and then try to analogize more plausible claims as being, oh, here we go again, right? rather than making distinctions that might be reasonable distinctions that can be made between one set of lawsuits and another set. But also, to be honest, this is also where the conservative media has done a great disservice because these are the lawsuits that they've been following and that there's been a lot of Twitter action about or talk radio. And you know, this is just not reality. Right? So these are the kinds of things that are not going to help anybody as they try to wrestle through the real issues that arose during this election and try to make progress on election integrity for the next campaigns. 
But what's defining about them is that they're easy, right? It was just a machine. Uh, and right. the conspiracies tied to a machine or the conspiracies tied to a Sharpie. So they're easy to understand. So it's, it's the shortest of all shortcuts to, to overturn the election, which um, proves to be kind of uh, the incorrect way to go about things. So second category, what I'm calling the, the rim shots. And there's a whole bunch of lawsuits. I'm not going to go into them individually, but basically the, the general tenor is there was some procedural problem, whether it was with mail-in ballots or with poll watchers. And then there's a lot of talk about then overturning the election or hundreds of thousands of ballots being invalidated. And consistently, these lawsuits have been thrown out by courts for lack of evidence. Uh, so that there's these big claims that kind of lead the headlines, both in terms of the media reports on it, but just in terms of the claims in the court documents. And then there's really follow through. You know, the affidavits don't actually accomplish much or they don't actually substantiate the charges that have been raised. So a series of lawsuits in Wisconsin and Michigan, Nevada and Pennsylvania that relate to whether poll watchers were given adequate access to the counting process. There were questions about whether legal votes were being not counted and illegal votes counted in both Nevada and Wisconsin. Of course, these are reasonable questions that ought to be investigated, but no evidence presented uh, to really substantiate the claim. So let's gather the evidence, then present the evidence, then make the case, right? That's, that's the way you do this rather than file the suit and then hope you can find the evidence to backfill the argument once you are in front of a judge. So these are the cases that may raise reasonable complaints but, but oversell the seriousness of the problem and under-deliver when it comes to the evidence to substantiate it. Yeah, and I was going to say that, I mean, we can understand that, yes, prerogative was abused in, in, in many states uh, by many individuals. Human beings are kind of uh, watching over these elections and counting votes, et cetera. So that's, uh, that's problematic, right? And I think that the, these claims could be true, but do they add up to the numbers that would be needed to overturn the results uh, in each of these states? And and the answer is probably not, unless you were able to find kind of you know a big case in, in one of the counties where uh, such prerogative was so abused that it was in the hundreds of thousands of votes or you know, tens of thousands of votes. Right. And, and the general way that these cases have been structured is to say there's a there's a problem with mail-in balloting counting in this county. And rather than being able to identify X number of ballots that shouldn't have been counted or something of that sort, they sort of say, then let's just throw out all the mail-in ballots from that county. Maybe 99% of them were valid voters exercising their right to vote properly. But because you've identified this whole category of ballots that are suspect in some way, and you want to throw them all out, you'd have a massive change in the election result. And it's the kind of thing that, that no court is going to be eager to do. Right? No, no court wants to invalidate hundreds of thousands or millions of ballots because of some procedural irregularity that can't be tied to any discrete ballot or set of ballots that can be separated out from the rest of the group. Um, I do wonder, however, Matt, on this front, that if if you have such a, um, a great amount of mail-in ballots and you weren't matching uh, the, the signature uh, on the mail-in ballot with, with the actual uh, ballot itself, you know, could you have been able to insert into the election tens of thousands of ballots that actually weren't mailed in? Is that, would that be possible? 
uh, or because what I've heard is that in, in some of these cases, like in Georgia, uh, they can't go back and match the out, outside envelope with the ballot on the inside. Right. Is that right. And that's the challenge, right? So this is again where, where the remedy becomes very difficult on the back end. If you haven't litigated these questions beforehand, right? Or if you haven't provided for an actual process whereby you're going to check those signatures carefully, then after the fact, if it hasn't been done, the only way to remedy the situation is to throw out all the mail-in ballots. Mm-hmm. And in this case, that's a massive percentage of the whole number of votes. And it just seems like an unreasonable thing for a, and certainly not something that a judge wants to do, to step in in such an obviously political way, knowing the result that would follow. There's another thing they just don't want to do. They don't want to pick winners and losers in elections. So it, it puts them in a very difficult situation. So that's why we're, you know, as we get through this, one of the things, the obvious lessons here is you've got to get your mail-in ballot rules right through the legislature. This is something that, that can be fixed and needs to be fixed, but it's just not the kind of thing that's easily fixed through lawsuits because the courts only have very blunt instruments after an election. Once those envelopes are separated from the ballots, there's no way to pull out the ballots that were improperly cast. And so unless you invalidate the whole election or you would take out all the mail-in ballots or you turn over the state legislatures, which are all just massively disruptive remedies, you're stuck. Uh, and, and you're stuck with reasonable questions about the integrity of the election on these points. Although in places, most places where the margins are wide enough that you'd say, well, probably not enough to tip the election, but we had some close states. And so you, you can't know for sure, say in a place like Georgia, perhaps, if it might have gone the other way. The, the, the real big lawsuit just from this last week was the one filed by Texas uh, against Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And there's now 18 states involved. 106 members of the House, Republican members of the House, have also signed on as Uh, Friends of the court signing a brief in support of this case, basically arguing that those four states changed their election laws illegally and asking that the results in those four states be decertified, that all states appoint electors rather than use a popular vote to determine the presidential electors. Now, this lawsuit got a lot of fanfare and, again, has a lot of official Republican support. But as you look at it more closely, you see there's really, really serious problems with this. Uh, Andy McCarthy, writing at National Review, maybe the person we cite the most on this show, at least when it comes to to legal questions, he's really a a very good analyst and, you know, strong Trump supporter. As we saw, he was one of the people that made the case for Trump on, on the show we did for that. So certainly not somebody who's looking for a reason to be critical of Trump or of the campaign or, you know, who has a different end in view here, but very, very critical of this lawsuit. And the first thing he points out in his recent piece on this is that the state solicitor general of Texas is not actually named in the lawsuit, which is very odd because of course, that's the person who would normally argue the case. It's only the state attorney general. And and that sort of sets up his analysis that basically this is a political move rather than a legal move and he argues that as a, as a political polemic, the Texas complaint is great, that it, it points out that there are serious problems 
with the laws in these states with regard to mail-in ballots, and that there are at least some cases um, where there are arguably unconstitutional things that were done in those states by either the state legislature or state Supreme Court. We'll talk about the Pennsylvania situation more in a few minutes. That's one of the states, of course, involved in this. But when you look further into this, what would it require for the court to rule in Texas's favor? Well, first of all, it would essentially have to say that the court, rather than the legislative branch, is the appropriate place to go when you have a problem with the laws of another state. Okay? It's a legal problem in most of these instances. It's a, it's a problem in the law. And so we're going to go to the court to fix the law. Well, that's not how you do that. Right? Separation of powers, 101, it's legislatures that make the laws rather than courts. And it used to be, at least, a principle of Republican Party 101 that they were in favor of legislatures making laws and courts not making laws. So, so here's the first layer of hypocrisy. Then on top of that, there's a real federalism question. So, so Texas is challenging the way that Pennsylvania et al. have enforced their own laws. Okay, McCarthy asks, does Texas want Pennsylvania to do the same? Are we going to then have lawsuits maybe now across the red-blue divide where California decides they don't like the way that Texas is doing Texas's stuff and Texas doesn't like the way California is doing California stuff. That seems very unlikely to be something that Texas is going to want. And again, clearly not something that's consistent with Republican Party principles, as, as they've been understood uh, for decades, to want to respect the proper uh, division of authority between states and the national government. So, so we've got that. And then the legal theory holding this all together, as McCarthy points out, there's actually no precedent that they cite because there is no precedent to hold this legal theory together. So we're going to have to create some more emanations from the penumbras of the Bill of Rights in order to fit this thing in there under some broad substantive due process claim, which again is in violation of every canon of constitutional interpretation that Republicans have said they hold dear. Whatever the particular merits of the individual concerns, and, and the individual claims regarding individual states, which should be litigated state by state by people in those states, Texas is not the party to bring this case. And if the Supreme Court were to actually agree with the argument in Texas, it seems hard to believe that it wouldn't do more harm to the Constitution than anything that Joe Biden could do in four or eight years as president. Yeah, and here I think, think there have been some um, individuals who have come forward who have been very good on this issue. Uh, my congressman in Texas, uh, representing uh, Texas's 21st congressional district, uh, Chip Roy, uh, thought uh, and, and argued that uh, the Texas lawsuit was a dangerous, uh, or would amount to a dangerous violation of, of federalism. And I think that, um, you know, understanding, right, that there, there are some problems here uh, with this election, definitely uh, with the 
he argues that massive mail-in ballots and, and changes to uh, signature matching that ought to be looked at in, in Georgia and other places. But um, lawsuits like this take away uh, from, from those efforts and, and probably at the end of the day will do more harm to those conservative principles that we ought to embrace, the constitutionalism that we ought to embrace. So uh, I think well done here by, uh, by Representative Chip Roy. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just one more place where we see that tribalism that has really perverted our politics in so many ways so that whatever argument necessary in order to advance the cause we're going to make, and if that means abandoning what we thought or what we said were our core convictions and our fundamental political principles, well, then, you know, we've just got to fight that fight, that fight and we've got to win. And it's just difficult to figure out how you can move ahead as, as a movement and what is the thing that actually holds the movement together other than a hatred for them and a love for that which is our own and, and what is it even that defines that which is our own? You know, it's, it's not a set of principles or ideals and ideas. It's, it's a certain maybe cultural posture or something of that sort. But, but whatever it is, the principles seem to hang pretty loose on this coalition of individuals who we thought were committed to limited government, constitutional government, separation of powers, and the like. All right, third category of lawsuits, uh, the long shots. Uh, I want to spend a few minutes at least on a couple of these because this is where we see really important questions being raised, but at a point where it's difficult to figure out the kind of remedy that could respond properly in, in the context. So there's a case... Trump versus Raffensperger in Georgia, alleging that more than 140,000 people voted who shouldn't have, uh, which includes 60,000 who were underage, 40,000 who had moved within the last 30 days before the election and hadn't changed their registration, uh, 5,000 who had recently moved out of state that shouldn't have still been able to vote, and then some other categories with smaller numbers. Also looks at the number of mail-in ballots that were invalidated because of non-matching signatures and, and notes that after the last two election cycles, where about 3% to 3.5% were invalidated, this time it was 0.3%. Was there actually an effort to match signatures across the state? It seems dubious in light of the statistical evidence that's being presented here. So this is a case that raises very serious questions. Obviously, if, if people are voting that shouldn't be voting, and if the requirement to check the signature is not actually being upheld. These are things that ought to be, ought to be resolved. Um, again, the, the difficulty is, well, what, what do you do if you find that the facts are as presented here um, and that the claims are borne out? Um, all you can really do at this point is to either have the state appoint electors or simply say, well, we just don't know who won this election. And in that case, maybe no electoral college vote should be counted from Georgia because the election outcome is simply unknowable, right? You, you, we, we, can't, we can't say, given how close it was and given the number of votes that are contestable and our inability to match one-to-one -one the problematic votes and remove those from the whole pool of votes, that all we could really say is we're not really sure what happened in Georgia. To give some you know, ideas to what's going on here in Georgia specifically, 
1,320,000 or so absentee ballots uh, were, were counted and only 2,011 were rejected. So, I mean, the, the number of rejected ballots is just incredibly low. And, you know, had you had, you had the same percentage rejected from previous years, um, you know, you're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of, of ballots that would have been rejected. Now, would that have put a President Trump over the top in Georgia? Who knows? But it definitely was kind of within the margin of error. Um, now, the other interesting case here I'd like to bring up is, is Kelly versus Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, which was a case that uh, was appealed to the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, that is, after having been dismissed by the state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania. Uh, but the Supreme Court did not take it up. So that, that case at this point appears to be dead. But the argument was that the General Assembly of Pennsylvania made illegal changes to the mail-in voting process, essentially by allowing for an at-will absentee voting system. And so if you go and you actually look at the Constitution of Pennsylvania, uh, surprisingly, it specifies four distinct categories of people that are eligible to vote by absentee. Otherwise, you have to go and actually vote in person. And so you have these four categories in the Constitution. And what the Assembly wanted to do was to essentially make it so anybody without giving a reason can cast an absentee ballot, cast a mail-in vote. And you can think about arguments on both sides of whether that's wise or not. But changes to who's able to vote by absentee ballot have to be done by constitutional amendment, not by regular law. And so they passed a law in the fall of 2019 that made these changes. There was further action in the spring of 2020 once COVID was underway, thinking about the likelihood of needing to have more mail-in ballots. According to the Constitution, you have to have two votes by the General Assembly in consecutive sessions, plus the people have to vote for an amendment to go into place. And that didn't happen. And so, in essence, what happened here was that by law, Pennsylvania General Assembly changed the Constitution of Pennsylvania. At least that's what's alleged, and I think a plausible allegation under the facts as they've been presented. Now, again, this is not a case that's apparently going to go anywhere, but it does raise significant questions and, and questions that are, are broader than just Pennsylvania about how the states went about establishing their rules for mail-in voting this year. Uh, there were some laws that were changed perhaps unwisely, in this case, perhaps both that and, and illegally. And so there too, as we look forward to, you know, what's, what's the next step in all this after Joe Biden's inaugurated? Well, the next step has to be making sure that these laws are actually squared with what's just and, and fair procedures, and that where there were efforts to take shortcuts, as you were saying earlier, Dave, that those shortcuts are repudiated and that the actual proper process is followed to make changes in this case that amount to a constitutional amendment. Yeah, and here I, I think it was problematic that the Supreme Court didn't take up the case because I think it would have been an opportunity for the Supreme Court uh, to, uh, to kind of set the record st straight on what can cannot be done, um, you know, uh, by states uh, regarding uh, their election laws. Uh, it seems to me it was pretty clear here that 
uh, Democrats in the state of Pennsylvania 14 months ago uh, wanted to create a set of shortcuts um, so as to get out uh, voters who might not otherwise vote. Uh, they were able to push it through in an omnibus bill that um, Republican legislators in Pennsylvania, I think, uh, ignorantly voted for, not realizing what the end consequence of this would be. Uh, and certainly the actions of, uh, of the um, Pennsylvania governor and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court here, uh, you would expect it from the governor, uh, have been kind of political and I think unethical, but by the, the court in Pennsylvania seemed to be uh, really kind of grievous assault on, on you know, the election. You know, uh, it seems that that uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court is incredibly uh, partisan a bunch of judges. So there, I think of all the um, cases brought forward, this one was the one that really caught my eye and it's the one that we really should focus on. And, and in, the, um, in, in a legal battle would be one, I think, that would help move things in the right direction moving to 2022 and so on. Brings up the question, um, there, it, there is a guarantee for uh, lowercase r Republican government within the Constitution itself, uh, and you wonder you know, when when cases like the Pennsylvania case are brought forth, where certainly uh, lowercase r Republican government is undermined by three branches of government that don't follow the Constitution. Um, whether that's something that um, the Supreme Court really actually should get into and and um, you know define in clear terms, I think I think that may be one place where constitutionally it would have a responsibility to do so just simply for the sake of maintaining a Republican government in the country. A few summary thoughts on this. I guess I'd start by saying uh, Democrats should, should spare Republicans some of the indignation over people thinking the election was stolen when they intentionally make mail-in voting laws that are rife with opportunities for fraud. And we can look at what happened in Pennsylvania, even the part that was legal in Pennsylvania was unwise, changing rules about signatures. We talked about the Nevada laws that encouraged practices that are just likely to lead to either people being pressured to vote in a certain way, like ballot harvesting, or individuals having the opportunity to take ballots that are sent out to people that don't even know they're coming. Too many loopholes that were created in the process of establishing the rules for this mail-in voting. And so it just shouldn't be surprising that people are suspicious, right? When you have a close election and you deliberately create mechanisms for mail-in voting that open up opportunities for fraud, that people are going to wonder, right? People are going to wonder. And, and had the election gone the other way, people would be wondering the other way. That's, that's the reality of it. So I think we're just going to have to deal with the fact that if you're going to do mail-in voting the way it was done this last election in some of these states, there will be legitimate concerns about the integrity of the election. Now, we don't have to stay there, right? So let's just follow the Constitution. Article 1, Section 4 says the time, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives should be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but that Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. So have control over election laws, right? You've got state level control. You have federal control. The Congress can jump in on these matters. And so let's work at, at the state level to make sure you have a fair mail-in voting rules and let's have a model bill at the national level. I'd be very interested to see what happens after 2022 if Republicans have control of the House and the Senate and see if, will Joe Biden veto a bill that that's a fair, reasonable bill on mail-in voting that nationalizes certain standards for mail-in voting, signatures, 
election day deadlines, no ballot harvesting, just sort of basic integrity things, really shouldn't be partisan. Present that bill to Joe Biden, would he, would he veto it? Maybe he would, but would he be willing to make the case that, that these things are, are problematic in any meaningful way? I think we've got to litigate every issue possible before elections. We've already said this. This is one of the great difficulties here is that once the election's over, once the result, presumptive result is known, it's a really big deal for a court to step in. And the remedies that are available to them are, are these really significant remedies that, that no judge wants to attach to their name. They, they want to allow the political process to unfold. And then beyond that, you know, only litigate those issues where you have the facts and a legal theory that you actually believe in. Right? No, no more of these Kraken lawsuits that destroy parties' principles for the sake of a long, long, long shot opportunity at a whim. And then the last thing I would say is that if, if you're at a point where you think, and all you've heard is that Trump's about to win the election, the Supreme Court's going to come in and overturn this whole thing, he won with a landslide, then you need to diversify the media outlets that you're listening to. Because, you know, this is just not connected to, to reality. Donald Trump did not win this election in a landslide. We've got to have some agreed upon starting points, both in principle and in facts, to allow us to move forward from here so we can actually address the real issues that are posed by this election in a way that gives us a chance to make sure that the mistakes and the problems aren't repeated the next time around. As we now transition to our required reading, I want to think about the broader context in which these kinds of debates are taking place. Yeah, so for required reading today, uh, a, a book that's really gained a lot of attention over the last uh, three or four weeks since it was published in November is a uh, titled American Awakening uh, by the author and professor of politics at Georgetown, Joshua Mitchell. And I think that um, we'll, we'll definitely be able to talk about Mitchell's book a little bit today, uh, specifically how it uh, regards uh, the idea of the importance of citizenship. But I think we'll also be able to reference it uh, over the next uh, few weeks here as we try to uh, continue to try to under understand um, where we're going as a nation and what role uh, citizens can play in the revival of the country. When I teach American politics and civilization and culture, what I try to remind my students of is that you know, much like the subjects of macro and micro economics that, that deal with economics uh, from kind of uh, the broader standpoint and, and the individual exchange between players in an economy, there's such a thing as macro politics and micro politics that uh, there are trends, right, that are shaping the political world uh, that we live in uh, that we have to account for. But then there's also our micro-political existence, uh, our connections uh, within the public square to one another, our associations. So if you, th you think of politics and, and political change in terms of what's happening at the larger level, the macro-political level, and what's happening at the micro level, it kind of, I think, gives you a, an excellent kind of paradigm uh, to, to try to understand these things. And I think that's certainly something that um, Joshua Mitchell has done in this book. The basic thesis of Mitchell's book, uh, titled American Awakening, Identity, Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time, is that Americans suffer 
from three afflictions. One affliction I would call a macro political affliction. And then the two others that he lists are micro political afflictions. The macro political affliction that we suffer from is the rise of identity politics uh, that uh, endangers uh, and produces an immediate threat to our republic. The, the micro political ailment that we suffer from, he calls on one hand bipolarity and the second addiction. So we as citizens suffer from a bipolarity and an addiction. So I want to kind of quickly work through each of these three ailments, the, the macro uh, political ailment that we suffer from, and then these two micro political ailments, and then bring it back uh, and connect it with what we've been talking about with the election. Um, the macro uh, political problem of identity politics, Mitchell argues, is, is tied to this uh, growing movement uh, under the banner of intersectionality in which every individual who lives uh, within the United States is either labeled as a transgressor uh, or as someone who is innocent. You are innocent if you are part of an identity group that has suffered uh, injustices uh, in the past. Um, that could be uh, racial um, minorities, that could be um, women, that could be um, homosexuals, uh, anyone who has uh, not been um, uplifted uh, by the law or whose life or way of life has not been secured by the law. Uh, you are the innocent. And the more that you fall into each of these categories, the more innocent you are. The transgressor uh, is, the, um, is the group in the past uh, that has uh, exerted itself uh, over uh, these innocents and, and now must um, be the scapegoat, must be the, um, the group that has to pay reparations for, for the past. And so Mitchell, what Mitchell does in this book is he says that a, a lot of the tribalism that we've referenced in our show today is tribalism brought on by pointing a finger, right, at the white heterosexual male, right, as the as the main transgressor and pointing at these other groups uh, who have been harmed uh, as the groups who need to now be accounted for. And, and he argues that, that this movement toward identity politics uh, prevents us from trying to engage with one another as a competent citizenry uh, and to produce uh, a peaceful healing uh, to, uh, to, Rightful, rightfully acknowledged injustices of the past. So uh, it's, go back to this idea, it, identity politics is a shortcut to justice, you know, rather than doing the hard work of, um, of facing someone who you've uh, harmed or injured uh, or done an injustice to uh, and apologizing to that person and working with that person to kind of rebuild uh, your relationship with them. If you go down that identity politics route, then it's just natural that people will then clump together in these various tribes and people who uh, are among the innocent will, of course, enjoy that status and reinforce that within that group. People that are judged to be guilty by group will probably resent that because they'll look and say, wait a second, what did I do? Right? And, and my life isn't all that you might think it uh, ought to be, or that it's supposed to be. 
And it's important to note here that uh, I think Mitchell suggests rightly that these categories of transgression and innocence are Christian categories, right? They're, they're drawn from our Christian worldview or understanding of the world. But the difference between uh, Christianity, um, the Christianity of the Bible, uh, of Christ, and identity politics is um, uh, taking of these categories and applying them to uh, present-day politics is that in Christianity, we are all transgressors. We are all fallen. And the only innocent, uh, whoever was, uh, was Christ, uh, who we'll soon celebrate, uh, uh, his father sending him into this world uh, for us, uh, and who dies uh, innocently uh, as a scapegoat on the cross uh, for our sins. So the reconciliation that we truly need with God as transgressors comes through right, the innocent person of, of Christ. But, but now you've, you've placed within one category of human beings that label of transgressors and another category of, of human beings that category of innocent. So you've really kind of undermined uh, the, the Christian message of transgression and innocence uh, of fall and, and redemption. And, and, and this, this, Mitchell argues, um, is, is a huge problem because, um, you know, when we look at, because we all make um, and have uh, ideas of what justice is in, in our heads, uh, but, and we were all trying, whether we know it or not, uh, to move uh, things towards a more just settlement of things. But if we believe that we're going to attain justice, uh, by kind of um, turning the, um, the the totem pole of power uh, upside down, so to speak, uh, taking those who were once mighty and perhaps transgressed, and then making them, you know, at the bottom of the totem pole and, and putting some others above them, you're just going to get a series, right, of of one generation after another generation where might makes right, and, and you never never have a true reconciliation. If that makes any sense, right? And and so you end up in a situation where there really can't be peace, you've got war. Now, I understand if, if you've been on the bottom and those that are on the top that are in danger of being put on the bottom say, well, hold on, let's, let's renegotiate. Let's just call it even. You can see why someone might say, not, not so fast. We've got some more work to do before we, before we call it even. But the difficulty in, in framing it in terms of identity politics rather than in working through reconciliation individual to individual or injustice at one injustice at a time is that there, there's no actual ever, there's, there's no end, right? There's no, there's not really any hope for an end right? because, because the categories once you're set in place are, are not designed to actually lead to some final settlement. You say, okay, no, we, we actually have taken full account of past injustices, and those those scores are settled. You know those those books have been cleaned up. There, this is the problem. You know, you, you've got original sin to go back to Christian categories that's applied to particular people, not universally, and there's no actual atonement. Right? There, there's no there's no declaration of innocence. There's no substitutionary action like Christ's or even individual satisfaction that that's possible. Uh, the, the, the sins multiply without end and the punishment accordingly. And then others are, are innocent indefinitely and, and are therefore 
always in a position to judge those who are perpetually fallen. Yeah, and this is one aspect of, of Mitchell's book that I think is encouraging. He, he suggests, okay, let's not look at the injustice of the past and just ignore it, set it aside, or as you said, just make peace now and okay, forget about it. He says, we need to move forward and that's going to take a lot of hard work and it's going to take the hard work uh, of citizens and citizens who are competent right, at practicing liberality uh, toward one another, practicing even-handedness toward one another, like humbly looking at themselves and looking at the situation uh, and, and going and, and kind of working with others um, to lift one another uh, up. Uh, that, that's hard work. That's not, that's not the work of, of a simple uh, victory in an election. Uh, it's, it's a work that requires you as an individual citizen to do something more than to cheerlead for your tribe. And, and this is where these two other ailments come in that I think are kind of interesting. So the where things at the micro political level also get in the way with a, a restoration or, or reconciliation. So identity politics is a macro political problem, but at the micro political level, he says that there is, there's very much a, a bipolar arrangement between the citizen and the state uh, in the 21st century. And what he means by that is that uh, the state, right, as the manager of, of society, right, takes over really kind of every major problem uh, that's to be handled. Uh, and, and the citizen kind of freely gives up, right, that power to the administrative state to do that. Uh, and then spends most of their time uh, kind of employing themselves uh, to, you know, kind of what he'll call like a, uh, a radical freedom in which you rarely have responsibilities uh, for others. Um, you rarely have time, in his language, for face-to-face real-time relations between yourself uh, and other citizens and the institutions uh, of society. So you hand over power on, on one hand to the state to solve all of the major problems, and then you kind of hang out in your basement, you know, upset, you know, <laughs> online, finding everyone who doesn't believe with uh, the same thing that you do uh, to be a criminal uh, and rallying around, right, social, social media networks uh, that suggest that others who aren't part of your tribe, right, uh, are, uh, are, are the worst thing in the world. So he calls this, you know, on the one hand, our, our deference paid to management society and then our belief in, in what he calls the selfie man, uh, where we're just a self that simply should care about our own person. And, um, I think that it's here really where, where Mitchell's book kind of hits home, especially with our show, Democracy in America, because uh, he references uh, Tocqueville's line about um, in a democratic age, uh, men uh, being less than men, but more than kings, right? You're, you're a king when you're sitting in your basement, um, spouting off about this, that, or the other online, but you're less than a man because you you give over most of your responsibilities as a citizen uh, to the state and and you and you kind of just receive uh, its administration over your affairs and you end up not uh, working through uh, the discourse and the active participation that might you know make your life and others lives better in in a in a sentence instead of being selfie man and paying deference to this a management society, we need to get back in the habit of exercising ordered liberty. What do those exercises look like? 
Well, they're more than simply voting in an election, right? They're taking on the problems of today and becoming more competent, as competent as we can be as citizens, uh, to do the right thing by others. Yeah, we have this weird tendency to see ourselves as the center of the universe, right? This sort of solipsistic social media presence. And that, I, love, I love the idea of selfie, man. It, it's perfect because, hey, there's me in front of the Statue of Liberty. There's me over, you know, it's where my presence makes these things meaningful. And then I put it up for the whole world to see. And it's, it's up there forever. I am mean, immortalized on Facebook, on Instagram, because that picture is never going away, presumably. And yet I can take a step back from that. And then, you know, you think about, again, the reaction we've been describing to this election where you have massive numbers of people that are convinced that there's this vast conspiracy that somehow these forces beyond even human description have, have worked together and coordinated this, this theft of this election. And so, you know, we have this little world that we're the king of, that we create ourselves, and where we are executive producer and director and the lead actor and the romantic lead, and we're, you know, we're everything we want to be. And yet, in the broader contours of our political lives, we're just, we're nothing, right? And there's these powerful forces that are just far too big for us to understand or to control. At the end of the preface, he says, uh, it sounds like you, you, you might expect me to be a pessimistic, right? And sort of think this is all over. Uh, but he's actually not. You know, he says, he uses the word uh, awakening in, in two ways. He uses it in an ironic sense, perhaps, or sort of hearkening back to the great awakening and thinking about that sort of religious fervor surrounding identity politics and some of these related challenges, but also imagining that there could actually be an awakening and then a, a reawakening as it were of, of Republican citizenship that, that might even emerge out of the troubles as people see the consequences of all this and begin to, to feel the burden of it. Yeah. And of course, right. The pointing out that these things are political problems. What, what's underlying his whole argument is that you're really dealing with a theological or an existential problem. That your inability to um, figure out how to act as a citizen in this world uh, is part and parcel of our inability um, to um, think forward and conceive ourselves as citizens in the city of God. Um, And our our inability to reconcile with one another, right, is just a a microcosm of our inability to reconcile ourselves with God. Uh, And, um, you know, we often rightly, right? Um, feel a, a sense of bipolarity because, you know, here we are, we've got, we're alive, we have all of these technological tools at our disposal that would make us think that we're greater than kings. But we realize at the end of the day that, you know, we have a certain time on this earth uh, and there's the reality of death and, and the reality of, of finding meaning when, you know, all the tools that we use or gadgets we use can't overcome that that very real thing of, of, of looming death and, and finding meaning. Uh, definitely a book that uh, if you're looking for something to uh, put on your Christmas list um, uh, for others or to have purchased for you uh, would be a great, a great purchase. Uh, Joshua Mitchell's American Awakening. All right, very good. So let's now turn to the grade book. And this is the time of year when the grade book is very active as we wrap up the semester. So we're certainly thinking about the grade book. 
as we put together final grades for our classes. And what we want to talk about this time are some finals week stress relievers. So obviously lots of stress the final week, and more so certainly for students and professors. We have the stress of getting the grading done in a, in a timely way and trying to work through all that. But that's, that's nothing really compared to the stress of the need to achieve and to do well on those final exams. So I'm going to kind of take us back to our, maybe our college days, or here's some advice for our, our students here. I'm going to grade four different possible stress relievers that you might turn to over the course of that final week. So number one, sports exercise. Get out there, toss a ball around, a little basketball, you know, go to the gym, right? Just, just some kind of physical activity. Yeah, it's always good. The only problem now is it's hard to find, you know, one of those places that are that are open, especially yeah. in California. I mean, all the gyms are closed. And you know, I just thinking like this, but gone on for nine or 10 months now. And it, that's an incredible uh, stress reducer to exercise is, is wonderful. Lifting weights, running, all of that is, is great. Uh, yeah, so uh, definitely uh, an A. You probably have to do it in your own little dorm room, though. So, um, which makes it more difficult, challenging these days. Got to get creative. Yeah, the only time I ever dunked was during the finals week, maybe sophomore year. We had an outside basketball court near our gym. I was and, gonna say, was that like a Nerf basketball? Like, well, I'm not side? sure it was a full size basketball. It might have been a volleyball. But you had an elementary school or something like that. <laughs> no. was it, the rim was well, like six feet. Yeah. No, this was. There was rumor that this rim might be an inch or so shy of ten feet. So I'm not saying I didn't have some advantages here, but that you know that that moment, I, I caught all the hops I was ever gonna catch, threw that thing down, felt good, and it propelled me on no doubt, <laughs> to success on my next exam. I want film on that. I'd like to see some proof. But <laughs> I can get a witness. My old roommate, he was there. He, he dunked too. So we, right. we both had a glory moment that day. Okay. All, All right. right. Our second choice, therapy pets. The last few years, this has been popping up. And you know, so you've got a, a dog usually that comes and you can go and play with the dog you know, for 15, 20 minutes and just kind of or refocus in the middle of, of all the challenges of, of studying for finals, writing papers, et cetera. Yeah, we only have one dog on the Providence uh, Christian campus, and, and that's my dog, uh, Tenny, who we, we misnamed Tenny. We should have called her Terry because she's terrified of human beings. So <laughs> okay. if, if we were to bring her over to campus, that she may need therapy, you know, rather than the <laughs> students she was helping. Yeah. Oh, uh, this the therapy pets is it's kind of like a seems to be like a byproduct of what's wrong with student life these days, you know, and too much a kind of you know giving in to to trends. So I I'm gonna give the therapy I love dogs. There's nothing wrong with dogs and it's great to have a good dog around, but uh, I'm gonna give that just a, a C minus, D plus as, as kind of a bad cultural trend. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm probably a little bit more positive on that, but yeah, I think better go, you know, take your own dog for a walk or, uh, you know, play with your cat. All right. Our third option, food, classic food, pizza, cookies, you know, whatever your favorite Chipotle, if that's the thing these days, certainly it was pizza when I was an undergrad, but what about, what about the food run, Dave? Pizza. Yeah. Pizza is an A plus. It's, it's, it's easy. It, you could, uh, 
So it's one of those things where if you really want to study and you don't want to um, get caught off, you know, by kind of making a big meal or whatever, where you end up having a study session and, and you don't end up studying, pizza's good. It kind of keep, <laughs> keeps you on the task at hand, right? Yeah. No, that's true. And of course, the classic delivery item, relatively inexpensive and goes down easy. So yeah, I'll give that an A also. All right. Last one we're going to talk about is a movie. Little little break, right? Get out the Netflix or fire up the old uh, DVDs. How about that for a stress relief, Dave? It'd be dangerous because one movie could lead to another and before long you wouldn't have done much studying that, that night. So I'll give that one a, a C as well. That, that could be a little dangerous. Yeah, I agree. You know, there's a, there's a real chance there that you start uh, binging on some show or, well, there's always a sequel these days to every movie. And, and so there went the whole night. So probably need something that's a little bit less time intensive and maybe a little bit more. I, I think the best option on this list, honestly, is, uh, you know, getting some exercise and just kind of getting some physical activity to break the mental stress. But we certainly wish all our students well as they yeah. make it through this finals week. Yeah, I just add one other thing. I think, yeah, you're right. Exercise, pizza, and then sleep. Sleep and is sleep. essential. Yeah, sleep is an A++. That's right. That's you need right. your sleep. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so we wrap up the show each week with the Tocqueville's Crystal Ball. Normally we pick five games, but one of those games last week was canceled. Might be just as well. We were both two and two, so in all likelihood we would have gotten that one wrong and then there would have gone our, our decent week. So I don't know. What do we make of that, Dave? You know, you did your opposites thing, and two and two is better than you know, one out of three, which was your basic proportion up until that point. But, you know, it wasn't, quite, get... wasn't quite the sign from God I was looking for. No, no uh, right, exactly. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, a healthy mediocrity can be a good place to be, but uh, we haven't maybe found the formula just yet. All right, so this week, number one, Navy at Army. Army-Navy game very rarely played at the home field of either team, but this year, because of COVID, they're playing it up at West Point. This is the big one. My dad is a Naval Academy grad, and every year I have to watch the game, and he can't really watch it, but I text him. If, if they've got a nice, safe lead and there's three minutes to go, then he can watch the last three minutes and enjoy the singing of the alma mater and all the rest. So we'll probably be back to our normal routine uh, tomorrow as, as this game unfolds. But Army is at home and a seven-point favorite. I'm going to go with Army. And uh, I think there's that, that home field advantage. Um, I'm sure the uh, – I don't know if they're allowing many uh, into the stands. But, uh, yeah, be, I, I, I'm going to take Army here. Yeah, they're going to have the whole – Sorry, Mr. Parks. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to have the whole Corps of Cadets and all the midshipmen there. That's why they're doing it at Army because they couldn't find other facilities that would allow them to have that many people there. So, yeah, Navy's had a tough year. I mean, it's been a weird year. So, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really blame any college football team that hasn't performed up to its normal expectations this year. But they're 3-6, and six, Army 7-2. and two. But I think Navy – is able to pull this off. Whether they can win the game, I think it's going to be close. They often are close. And I think, you know, this is, this is their season. And so I think Navy comes out, plays hard, and they cover this spread. And, boy, I hope they win because it would be nice for my dad to be able to watch at least a few minutes of the game tomorrow. All right, number two, we have number 17, North Carolina, at number 10, Miami. So the 
ACC championship games already been determined because they canceled some games. It's going to be Clemson against Notre Dame. But now this is really the battle for third place here. Uh, North Carolina and Miami. Miami's a three-and-a-half-point favorite at home. What do you think, Dave? I think Miami takes this game. They've had a, a great season. I think uh, aiming for, I think, 10 wins with, with this victory would give them 10 wins. Uh, would be would be great. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'll go with the Hurricanes here. The U. <laughs> All right. I agree with you. I, I think three-and-a-half points is – not a big spread, really, for a home game. That's that's pretty much saying it's a pick'em game. And I, you know, you look over their common opponents in the ACC. I think Miami's performed consistently better than North Carolina. So I think that's that's a pretty low line. So my guess is Miami wins this thing by a touchdown, ten points, something like that. All right, number three is our NFC East game of the week. We have the Cardinals at the Giants. Now, you know, we we started this as a joke because. Things were going so badly for NFC East teams, and we thought maybe you know the division winner might win five or six games. But unfortunately, the Giants have won four in a row, and Washington's looking pretty decent. So now they're both five and seven. Philadelphia and Dallas are still terrible, so we at least have that to hold on to. But but you know if the Giants win this one, that'll be five games in a row, and they have a real shot at five hundred or better. Arizona on the road as a as a two point favorite. Uh, what do you think, Dave? I think the Giants continue their their winning streak. Uh, their defense is playing great. Uh, I think that uh, uh, Arizona uh, Murray's been injured, uh, and uh, they just they're not running their offense. So I, I say the Giants win this game and, and keep their streak going. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, I think your reasons are all good there, but I'm just committed to basically being against the NFC East teams. And so now that it's crunch time, I've really got to double down on that. So I'm going to take the Cardinals. I hope they find a way, you know, let's go Kenyon Drake. That would really help my fantasy team. If he can have a big game, maybe score a couple touchdowns. I'm in a tough battle in the first round. Of course, I know Dave, you have the bye as the number one seed in our league. So congratulations for that. But um, I'm hoping Kenyon Drake has a big game and, and maybe the Cardinals pull out, uh, you know, field goal or touchdown victory here. Okay. Number four, Ravens at the Browns Monday night football. Bigger game than you might have thought at the beginning of the year. Ravens a two-point favorite, but the Browns with the better record. What do you think? I still don't buy the the Browns uh, as as a legitimate contender. Uh, I just May, Mayfield always strikes me as someone always ready to throw three interceptions and lose a game for his team. So I, I think that happens. I think the Ravens come out and, and play well. I think they're the better team uh, as well. So I'm, I'm going to go with the Ravens here, uh, giving up two points. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go the other way on that one. I think, you know, the Browns seem to have found the formula. They've got a great ground game, Kareem Hunt plus Nick Chubb. Unbelievable talent there. And if Mayfield can just kind of stay out of his own way, I think they can, they can win this. The Baltimore offense has been sputtering recently. I don't know, Lamar Jackson just hasn't been this year what he was last year. I, th- I think the Browns are able to win this at home. Uh, it'll be a close game, probably entertaining game. All right, last is always something a little bit different. So as no doubt you've been keeping a close eye on, Dave, this is the MLS Cup final this weekend. We what have, sport is this? Uh, this is soccer. This I'm is soccer. <laughs> no, well, it's, it's Seattle at Columbus. And what I was going to do was to see if you could tell me the nicknames for those two teams, Seattle at Columbus. No, I cannot. All right. It's the, it's the Seattle Sounders. 
Puget Sound, and the Columbus Crew, which I'm not sure what that means other than it's alliterative. Okay, so uh, we've got the Seattle Sounders at the Columbus Crew. It uh, actually is at the Columbus Crew, so they're the home team for the MLS Cup here. And the crew are coming off a 1-0 win over the New England Revolution. Sounders won a crazy win over Minnesota. They were down 2-0 with 15 minutes to go. Scored three goals, one in the 89th minute and one in stoppage time to ruin Minnesota's Cinderella hopes and make it to the cup final for the fourth time in five years. So Columbus is the slightest of favorites playing at home. What do you think, Dave? I'm going to go with Columbus. I think, uh, I think the crew take this one. Okay. All right. Solid analysis there. <laughs> All your favorite players. I, 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 like the, I like the alliteration. I think that that's really going to serve them well um, in this game. Yeah, the well, crew- Seattle Sounders, you know. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> But it right. can't end up as a tie. So Yeah, uh, they have to play to some kind of resolution. All right, very good. So Columbus, one of the smallest towns to have a major league team probably in America. Has that distinction going for it? I'm going to take Seattle. I've got the hometown roots there with my mom's side of the family and, uh, and my grandfather. And, of course, I've already committed myself to being a huge Seattle Kraken fan when that franchise opens up in the NHL. So – Why not have my MLS team be the Seattle Sounders? They win a lot, and they're certainly well-supported up there in the Pacific Northwest. So I say they would take their third championship in five years. Go Sounders. All right, well, that's it. It's going to wrap up the show for this week. We thank you, as always, for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, and we'll look forward to talking to you next week.